We are in a, a section where we are able to do a couple of chapters at a time. And so uh, it's always a challenge to get through that amount of material, but a lot of this is, uh, you know, narrative and just telling us the story of what happened, but there are some incredible lessons for us that we need to consider this morning. So Genesis chapter 27, looking at 27 and 28. So get ready for that. I've got to pull out my timer here. Believe it or not, I do try to make sure I'm not going too long. I try. doesn't always work. <laughs> well, thank you. Sorry. I should have had all this done beforehand, but I didn't have it ready. Okay. So we're going to look at chapter 27, and we're going to read down to verse 17. Uh, we can't obviously read through that whole portion. And then we'll begin to take a look at what God has for us. Now it came to pass, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called Esau his older son and said to him, my son. And he answered him and said, here am I, here I am. And he said, behold now, I am old, I do not know the day of my death. Therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go out in the field and hunt game for me. And make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make me savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Excuse me. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, get them for me. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids uh, of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son, Jacob. Lord, would you add your blessing to the reading of your word and give us understanding as we study it together and seek to just glean from this amazing story the things that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in a portion here where we are kind of walking through the life of Isaac and now looking at his two sons, Esau and Jacob, and kind of how things begin for them. Last week, we looked at um, how Rebecca had become pregnant uh, after much prayer. Um, Isaac had gone to prayer for his wife because after many years of marriage, she had not been able to conceive and then when she was able to conceive, as the children were growing in her womb, they began to 
be overly active, you might say. In fact, they were literally fighting within the womb, and she didn't know that she was carrying twins, and so she went and sought the Lord and prayed. And the Lord revealed to her that she was indeed carrying twins. And as he revealed this to her, he said, you have two nations in your womb. And he said, rather than tradition being followed, the the older will serve the younger. We talked about that last week, but there was a family hierarchy. And in that hierarchy, uh, it would have been customary for the older son who would have become the patriarch when the father died and the family blessing both materially, physically, as well as spiritually would have been passed along to that son. And then they have this term that they called the birthright. And the birthright was primarily spiritual, but also included physical and material blessings. And as the two boys grew, and they had, and it became apparent that they were very, very different children, uh, Esau came out first, so he was by birthright the oldest child. But we are told that his name means Harry, and that also he was very red. And so you kind of get this idea of sort of a, just a red furry carpet, sort of like Chewbacca as a baby. And so he, uh, he came out, that's just to make sure you're awake, you haven't fallen asleep yet. And so he, he came out and then his brother had caught his heel and then he came out and then we're told as they grew, it became apparent that Esau was this man of the field, sort of a mountain man, an outdoors man, always hunting, always out in the field doing something. And Jacob was more of what we might term a mama's boy. Uh, he was at home, he was smooth skinned, he, uh, he was always hanging out with his mom and uh, then we're later told that they sort of had favorites, which is a bad thing to have happen. Uh, Isaac loved e- Esau. He was kind of his, his kind of man. And then Re- Rebecca, of course, loved Jacob. And we are told that uh, during the course of that story that the Lord in his prophecy to her was saying, Jacob would be the one who would be blessed. He would gain the birthright. He would be the one that the blessing and the bloodline would go through. And so now we're many years later, and remember uh, one of the things that happened last week, very significant, was that Esau came in one day very hungry, very tired, and uh, wanted to eat. And he was just, if you've ever been this way, maybe so hungry, your blood sugar's low. And he was probably hangry. Uh, in that moment, and he uh, bargained with his brother, look, just give me some food and I'll give you my birthright, because he, he just didn't think it was worth having. He saw no significance in it. He despised his birthright, we were told. And so now we're, we're fast forwarding many years later, and um, Isaac has gotten very old. Now, a significant thing to know here is that Isaac does not know the time of his death, just like we don't. But he thought it was near just by how he felt and how he was aging. And so he calls his son here in the first part of chapter 27, Esau, to come to him. And he says, I want you to go out and hunt for me. You know, oh, one last time, my son, you know, prepare that special meal that you prepare. And most commentators believe that he was talking about venison or some kind of a wild game that, you know, you couldn't get on the farm, so to speak. And so he sent his son out and wanted him to go and hunt game and bring it back and prepare it for him. And then he was planning to give the blessing to Esau. And it's interesting that we know that Jacob and Esau knew of the blessing that uh, the Lord had given to their mother. 
Um, and that, of course, Rebecca had shared that with Isaac as well. So the family knew of these things. They knew of the prophecy of the Lord. And, of course, Isaac, being the spiritual head of the family, should have been leading the family. And you would be thinking, of course, how, how do we handle this delicate situation? You know, God has spoken. And that the younger should get the birthright and the older would serve the younger. How would that happen? And it would seem here that Isaac is sort of living in denial of what God spoke, of God's blessing, of God's word. And so he put himself ahead of the Lord here and saying, look, my son, you go out and notice he's doing this privately. He thinks he's doing it privately. And uh, he sends Esau out to go do this so that when he comes back and brings the, the game that he had killed and prepared, that he would pass along to him the birthright. So he put himself ahead of the Lord and I'll just read this to you. When Isaac's father Abraham prepared for death, his concern was to get a bride for his son, Isaac, and to maintain the covenant promise. When King David came to the end of his life, he made arrangements for the building of the temple. And Paul's burden before his martyrdom was that Timothy would be faithful to preach the word. But here we find Isaac, rather than doing those things, rather than preparing to pass along the birthright to his son, Jacob, he decided he was going to pass it along to the older son. He wanted the way things were. He wanted tradition over the will of God. So he actively disobeyed God's command. And before the boys were born, of course, this was spoken. God's word was given to them. It was very clear. And it was something that they had known. And then, of course, they knew that Esau himself had traded his birthright for a bowl of soup, for a bowl of stew, with his brother Jacob. The family knew this. And we see here another thing of Isaac in particular, that he seemed to be a man who lived more by the flesh. He lived more by his feelings than by faith. Uh, he was blind. He was apparently bedridden and in a condition that you would think would make him trust God and cry out to God for his help. And instead, he rejected the way of faith and depended on his own senses, his taste, his touch, his hearing, and his smell. And the approach he took was to pursue his own path. But even with Isaac's failure in this, we also see that Rebekah, that wonderful bride that he had chosen and that we are told early on whom he loved as he took her unto himself, she is now trying to do her own thing. Now remember earlier when we were going through the life of Abraham, that Abraham several times had tried to sort of force his will upon the situation. Remember when he went down to Egypt and he told her, tell them you're my sister so that they won't kill me because you're very beautiful and they will kill me and take you from me. But then God graciously delivered him from that. And then they went back and then he built an altar and kind of got back on the right track with the Lord. But then later in life, he came into contact with the king Abimelech and did the same thing many, many years later with them. And once again, the Lord delivered them from that situation. And then of course, last week in the story, we saw that now Isaac had done the same thing with Rebekah where he had gone down and was headed to do the exact same thing, and God intervened and interrupted him on his way to do the same thing that his father had done, to repeat the sins of his father. But now 
as he's aged, it would seem in Isaac's life that there's been a cooling in his relationship with God because he knows these things, and yet he is determined that he's going to do something different. But also Rebecca, now she's gotten involved in the deception here in verses 5 through 27, and what she's going to do is to, to try her hand at also turning the tide to force God's blessing to happen on her son Jacob, whom the Lord had spoken he would be the one who would inherit it. In the willfulness, willfulness of his old age, Isaac was determined to pass on the blessing to Esau, despite what the Lord had said and what the boys had shown in their lives. The fact that Isaac tried to dispense the blessing secretly showed that he knew that what he wanted to do was wrong. And sadly, in this house, no one trusted anyone. So the boys were at odds with one another because of the deception that had happened. The husband and wife were at odds with one another. They had favorite sons. And they were now both working sort of secretly, sort of covertly to orchestrate how they wanted to do the blessing. Rebecca wanted to make sure the blessing went to the one God said would get it. And Isaac wanted to make sure the blessing went to his favorite son. So Rebecca was listening there. We're not told if she was actually eavesdropping or maybe was just in a place where she overheard. Either way, she turned it to deception. And when she saw Esau go out to the field, uh, she spoke to Jacob and began to bring him in and said, look, this is happening. It's ha this thing's going down right now. So what we have to do is circumvent the situation. I want you to go out to the flock, bring two of the choicest, youngest goats, bring them in. I will prepare them just like your father loves and we will go in and we will take the birthright. Now I want you to stop and think about what's happening here. Esau's gone out to hunt wild game, and if you've ever had wild game, you know that wild game tastes gamey, and freshly killed meat is amazing. But he was going out to likely get venison and she's cooking goat. So now consider how dull Isaac's senses have become in his old age. And this deception is now going to go forward where the son, Jacob's going to go in. And as we read here a few moments ago, she's going to take the skins of the goat. She's going to put them on him in strategic places because she knows with his eyesight being so poor, he's likely going to grab him on the arm or put his hand on the back of his neck and those kinds of things. Draw him near because the voice is not the same, I imagine, you know, uh, Esau being the kind of man that he was probably had this deep booming voice and Jacob being the kind of man he was probably had a more higher pitched voice. And so the voices were very different. And if you're a parent, you know, the voice of your kids, you know, the cry of your baby from across the room of, of other babies as well. So uh, he, he would have known the sound of his voice. And so now they are putting together this scheme. Esau is out doing his thing. Rebecca's doing her thing. Now she's drawn Jacob into it. And she's telling him, I want you to do this. I want you to take these goats, this goat stew to your father. Remember, faith is living without scheming. And faith means obeying God no matter how we feel or what we think or what we think might happen. So even if we think God's plan might not come to pass. In our own mind, humanly speaking, we have to understand if God has spoken, if God has said he will do something, if God has said a, a promise will take place,
then God will fulfill that promise when he is ready in his time and according to his ways. But here we see all of this deception going awry. Spurgeon said this, good men have, good men have gone very wrong when they have thought of aiding in the fulfillment of promises and prophecies. See how Rebecca erred in trying to get the promised blessing for Jacob. We had better leave the Lord's decrees in the Lord's hands. You know, God doesn't need our help, and unless he specifically asks us to do something, we should stay out of the orchestration of the fulfillment of his will. So Jacob is realizing what his mother is saying is kind of a crazy plan. He challenges her on it and gives her some questions there in verses 11, 12, and 13. And he has a modicum of respect for his father in verse 12, where he says, perhaps my father will feel me. I mean, he's going to know, right? Our voices don't sound the same. But his mother said, look it, I'll take the blame, right? Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. I mean, she is determined to make this happen. Now, interesting, someone pointed this out here. I want to share it with you. When we are willing to abandon the question of right and wrong, and when our only concern is what works, we agree with the modern idea of pragmatism as many in the church do today. So rather than doing what's right by God, we want to look at a situation and say, well, this is the right, the right thing to do is to wait, to wait, <clears throat> excuse me, to wait upon the Lord, to wait for him to fulfill his plan. But it's not really happening the way we want. So we're going to get involved and do something to make it happen. Pragmatism. We need to wait upon the Lord. And when he went and got them and he brought the goats to his mother and she prepared them and then she dressed him up. She even put on her brother's clothes. Think about how far this is going. Now, I imagine and I picture in my own mind with the kind of men these boys are, I, I, I imagine Esau as being kind of a large, extra large kind of a guy. And Jacob's probably more of a medium shirt kind of a guy. And now she's taking her, her son's clothes, uh, the older son, putting it on the younger. So I imagine, of course, this like wearing a sheet to him or something. And he's got these clothes on, which he's probably very uncomfortable in. He's got skin now strapped to his neck and to his arms and his hands. And he's going in to take the stew to his father. So there's all this deception and lying going on. And so now Jacob goes in. Verse 18, so he went to his father and said, my father, my, <clears throat> my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, now the first of five lies. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. <clears throat> I'm, I'm Esau, dad. I have done just as you told me. Please arise and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. So he claimed to be Esau, lie number one. He said, eat of my game, lie number two, because he just went out to the flock and got some goats, not venison. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly? I mean, normally he'd be gone a half a day or a full day, you know, hunting and finding the game and bringing it in and dressing it and draining it and all those things. And he says, how was it that you found it so quickly, my son? And he said, listen, because the Lord, 
Your God brought it to me. So he claimed to have obeyed his father's wishes, number three, and he implicated God in his lie and his scheme. Said, well, the Lord blessed us, Lord. Dad, look. I mean, he, boom, he just went out and he gave it to me, right? Just right in front of me. A deer standing, posed with a big target on its side, just waiting for me to take it. You know, when you bring the Lord into your lie and into your scheme, when we're using God to validate our decisions when clearly his leading and prompting has been otherwise, we are in a dangerous place. Listen, it's one thing for us to lie, and I'm not going to ask for hands here because I know that all of us have told at least one lie in our lives, right? Amen, glory, hallelujah. We can get an amen to that. We've all told at least one lie, maybe even this week. But when you bring God into it, well, you know, the Lord's leading me to do this. Well, God wants me to do that. And we, we bring God's name into it. Man, we are on shaky ground. Isaac said to Jacob, verse 21, please come near me that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So now he's starting to get suspicious. He's like, mm, something's not right here. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him, and he said, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. Now, when you think about, have you ever been around a goat? You ever like petted a goat at a petting zoo? Like that just hairy, just, you know, it's like, this is not, I have texture issues when I go to pet the goat, you know, it's like, ooh, I don't like this. To think that that was what his skin was like, that he was touching the goat skin on his neck and on his hands and going, yep, feels like my son. That, you th you listen, ladies, you think your man has hair issues? Thank God he's not like Esau, right? <laughs> so, you know, he comes. And he comes near to his father, and he did not recognize him, and he said all these things, and he says, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am, lie number five. Again, he claimed to be Esau. Verse 25, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him, masquerading. I mean, this is really another lie as well. Masquerading the stew to be wild game, likely venison, but clearly it's goat stew. And his father um, said to him, come near now and, and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing. So see how complete the deception is. This is like something out of Mission Impossible, right? Put the mask on, go as far as you have to go to convince them that you are that person. And he said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. So here's another lie, and this lie is a hypocritical kiss. It's a kiss of betrayal. He's feigning love and respect for his father while lying to his face. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and, of, uh, and plenty of grain and wine, and let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. He now passes along to his son Jacob through trickery and deceit, the blessing of God, the blessing of the birthright, 
the blessing of the firstborn. Again, it is important to see that it wasn't the bestowal of these words upon Jacob that made him blessed. Instead, Jacob was blessed because God chose him long beforehand. What mattered was that God said the older shall serve the younger, not that Isaac said it. You see, they were intent on making Isaac say the words against his will. And listen, God, when he leads us in something, I hope you know this by now, but if you don't, you know, he, wants a willing, uh, he wants a willing son or daughter. He wants someone who's willing to obey him, who's willing to say, yes, Lord, and to follow him in obedience and trust. Not one whose hand is forced And so this trickery and this deception is not gaining the blessing of God. God had given it and God said he would give it. But the schemes of man were not accomplishing the will of God. The point is that the sovereign will of God is done in spite of our or any other person's opposition to it. You see, they were, they were all looking at the situation. You know, Rebecca, when she overheard this, now stop and think about this. What if it had been different? What if she had stopped in that moment and fell to her knees and began to pray and said, God, you said that Jacob was going to get the blessing, not Esau, yet this thing is happening. Lord, what are you going to do? And wait upon the Lord and pray and just maybe even go in and talk to her husband in that moment and say, now, you know, right? You know what happened. We've talked about this. I shared it with you, you know, several years ago when this happened, when the boys, uh, you know, when I was pregnant, you, you know these things. Why are you doing this? You know, have a conversation about it. Talk about the will of God. Talk about how God is leading you as a family. Instead, As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out of the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his his brother, came in from hunting. He had made the savory food. He brought it into his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that your soul may bless me. And his father, Isaac, said, who are you? And he said, I am your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly. And the Hebrew here is very descriptive. It's like he trembled with trembling. He was literally shaking. He said, who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate all of it before you came and I have blessed him. And indeed he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me also, my father. But he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob, which means heel catcher or supplanter or deceiver? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now he has taken away my blessing. Now keep in mind, we put a little pause here, that the first time he's referring to is when he sold his birthright to his brother, and we were told in the story we read last week that he despised his birthright. So Jacob didn't steal his birthright. He gave it away. He sold it. He didn't value it. He had no 
place in his heart for the birthright that would come from his father. So here he is blaming the situation on Jacob, and certainly Jacob was complicit in the scheme, but the first time he gave his blessing away, he did not, uh, Jacob did not steal it. So he said, look, now he's taken away my blessing. Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac said to Esau, indeed, I've made him your master and all his brethren, and I have given to him as servants with uh, grain and wine, and I've sustained him. What shall I do now for you? And Esau said to his father, have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. It's at this point that we turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and we look at God's commentary on this situation, because it's easy for us as outsiders to read this and to have incredible compassion on Esau, and I wouldn't deter you from that, but here's what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17 say, looking back upon this situation keeping in mind the Holy Spirit as the author of Scripture, and he is bringing to us clarity on what's really going on behind the scenes. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, listen, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled." Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know afterward that when he wanted to inherit the blessing, this very story we're reading, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with fear, excuse me, with tears. And it's at this point someone wrote this, Esau's tears were not tears of repentance for being an ungodly man. They were tears of regret because he had lost the covenant blessing. Esau wanted the blessing, but he didn't want to be the kind of man whom God could bless. So Esau in this moment crying out bitterly. And so his father answered him, verse 39 of chapter 27, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. So looking forward and prophesying to a meeting that would happen to, them, <clears throat> to him in just a few chapters from now where God will bring reconciliation between the brothers. In verse 41, Jacob is now being sent out and he is escaping from Esau through his mother, Rebekah, who's still looking out for him. So verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, now this is what bitterness does, folks. It brings you to a place that you want to literally murder someone. The days of mourning for my father are at hand and then I will kill my brother. Now, it turns out that Isaac lived a great many years um, after this point. He wasn't indeed on his deathbed, so he actually rushed the whole situation. And had he waited until the time was right, you know, rather than living according to his feelings, 
God would have showed him when it was time to pass the blessing along. And I believe, in hindsight, looking at this, that had he waited for God's timing, rather than trying to rush it, he would have likely made the right decision and given the blessing to Jacob in the proper manner. It's just speculation on my part. So the days of mourning for my father are at hand, and I will kill my brother. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So likely one of the servants overheard this and passed it along. Now, the whole household knows how Isaac and Rebekah feel about the two sons. And the words were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. So this is how he's bringing peace to his soul by telling himself, oh, he's mine, I'm going to kill him. I can't wait to get my hands around his neck. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. She's thinking, you know, he's just a little hot-headed and needs a couple days to cool off. But she's sending him Back on that same journey, remember the servant was sent to go find a wife for Isaac as Abraham sent him out. And if you take a direct path, as we had shared back then, it would be 500 miles journey, but the trade route would have taken you closer to around 800 miles to get there because of just going through mountain passes and those kinds of things. So this was likely a 30-day-plus journey. So this is not just hop in the car, go over to your uncle's house and stay for a few days and then come back. This is a long journey. This is going to take a long time to get there. Now, the interesting thing to note, and this is all to be heard in the context of the scheming plans that they came up with, is that as Jacob departs, this is the last time he saw his parents alive. When he goes out and he spends this time with Laban, he We're going to get into that story starting in chapter 39. He was there over 20 years, and when he came back, his parents had passed on. So this was the final interaction he had with his family before his parents died. So go and and stay there until your brother's fury turns away, and he forgets what you have done to him, as if he was going to forget that. And it's interesting how she says to him, how he forgets what you have done to him when wasn't she the one who said, hey, come here, we got to get this going. She even uh, doesn't acknowledge her own part in this as she says these things. She says, why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? And Rebecca said to Isaac, so she goes into Isaac now to kind of further continue to take this plan and push it. Uh, I'm weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. And then these were the daughters, of course, that we are told at the end of the previous chapter that Esau had taken, and it said that they were sort of a curse to uh, Isaac and Rebekah. She said, if Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So she's telling him, send him away just like Abraham did to get you a wife, a.k.a. me. We should do the same thing for Jacob now that he has the blessing. We need to send him away to get a wife. Then um, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, which is what his father said to him. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, to your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother." 
May God Almighty bless you. He calls upon the mighty name of God. And he says, may you be fruitful may, and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples. So again, repeating to him the blessing that God had given to Abraham, that God passed down through Abraham to Isaac. And now Isaac is giving that blessing to Jacob. And give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. So now we put sort of a comma there and we come back over to Esau. And it would seem that Esau now sees what's happening and he realizes likely that he made a mistake in the way he went about taking wives for himself. So verse uh, chapter 28, verse 6, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to take himself uh, a wife from there. So he went to the household of Ishmael and he took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Now, it would seem by this action that Esau thinks he's somehow going to ingratiate himself to his dad to perhaps even get some blessing back that was given to his brother, which certainly he had to know was impossible. So now Jacob is traveling, uh, verse 10 of chapter 28. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place. So he's traveling by himself apparently. And he stayed there all night because the sun had set and he took one of the stones of that place and he used it for his head, uh, for a pillow. And he lay down in that place to sleep and he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. So now he's being given a vision. God is coming to him. God is revealing something to him. And so here's what's being revealed. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And he said, I am the Lord God of, your Abra of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, it's interesting. God communicated the blessing to Abraham. Abraham communicated the blessing to Isaac. But God also communicated the blessing directly to Isaac. Now that Jacob has been sent out, now that the blessing has been given to Jacob, and even though the blessing had been given through Isaac to Jacob, now God is coming to Jacob, and God is confirming to Jacob directly, you are the one, you are the blessed one, you are the one through whom the bloodline will come, the blessing will be upon you. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, the same thing that he told Abraham. And then he says in verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Now, God's not saying that he would leave him, but he's just sort of letting him know, I will be with you. I will see this thing through to the end. 
I imagine after what's happened, after the deceit and the deception, the turmoil in his family, I mean, having your family divided like that, where there's four of you and none of you trust the other. There's an alliance perhaps between mother and son on this side and father and son on that side, but, but there's just this trickery and deceit. This was the modus operandi for this family. And for God to speak to him and say, I am with you, I will keep you. Wherever you go, I will bring you back. I will fulfill my promise to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. I love it when I'm reading God's word or praying or something of that nature, maybe in a time of worship, and you have that clear sense that God is speaking to you. And I don't know if you've ever had that. I hope you have. But in that moment, probably sensing the failure, probably realizing that his nature of scheming and trickery and deceit had not served him well up to this point. Things are not really going all that great. Yes, he got the blessing, but at what cost? And listen, we can miss the fact that sin always costs us something, doesn't it? It does. Sin has a great cost, especially if there's deception and that kind of thing, such as we see here in the story of this family. And yet, to this very day, even in the New Testament, it is quoted over and over and over, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Can you see the grace of God? I mean, look at what's happened here and how horrible this is. This, this would be a terrible movie, wouldn't it? If this were made into a movie, we'd be like, wow, well, that's a messed up family. Talk about dysfunctional. This would be the definition of a dysfunctional family. And yet, God says, no, I'm with you. I'm going to bless you. In spite of your sin, in spite of your lying, in spite of your trickery and your chicanery, I'm with you. God's not condoning the sin. Remember, God hates the sin and loves the sinner. God is saying, I'm with you. You see, this is God being the initiator and man is the responder. Now we need to see how does Jacob respond to the blessing of God. So he wakes up, he says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. <clears throat> in John chapter 1, we find Jesus referring back to this situation where Jacob is in this place which he's about to name Bethel. And it says in John chapter 1, Nathanael had answered and said, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And then in verse 51, he says, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And Jesus is making a veiled reference there to this situation where Jacob had this, this vision, this dream, and I encourage you to go back and read it uh, in, in chapter 28, 11 through 15. 
And what happened? He dreamed, behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I'll give to you. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. He reaffirms the blessing. And he says, behold, I am with you. Jesus, when he came, was the incarnate one. He was Emmanuel, God with us. And as he came, what did Jesus say? He said in the Great Commission, and lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. In the book of Hebrews, he reaffirmed through that author's pen to us. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The very words of God that God spoke here to Jacob. You see, this thing we might call Jacob's ladder or Jacob's dream is a prophetic foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't Jesus say also in John's gospel, chapter 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, he's saying, I'm that ladder. I'm the one through whom people must go to reach heaven. And in Genesis 28, 17, and he was afraid, this is Jacob, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now you can understand that if I had been in his situation, I would have been like, whoa, this is a holy place, right? And so he, he says there, this is the, the place where God appeared to me. Then Jacob rose in verse 18 early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. Bethel means house of God. And it's interesting in this moment as he, he does this act of worship, as he poured oil on top of it, I imagine what he did as he, he took the only thing he had with him, which was probably oil and water and flour, and he took that oil and he poured it out on the top of that stone. Now, what does that mean? We know a little bit later in, in Hebrew worship, the pouring out of a liquid was symbolic of the pouring of one's life out in devotion before the Lord. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 40, it says, with the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine is a drink offering. This idea of a drink offering is the idea of pouring yourself out before God and dedicating yourself to the Lord. In Numbers chapter 15, verse seven, and as a drink offering, you shall offer one third of a hen of wine. In Philippians 2, 17, Paul referred to this issue of the drink offering, and he said of himself, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So I believe that Jacob in this moment, this act of worship, that this was an epiphany in his life. This was an appearance of God to him. And as this is happening, he's saying, I've got to worship this place. This is the house of God. And hopefully this is something that marks him going forward in life. This was something that changes him. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house and of all that you 
give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So, so Jacob is being moved. He's worshiping. He's committing himself to the Lord. But notice what Jacob said versus what God said. There's a great contrast between these two things. Jacob, excuse me, God's promise to Jacob is, I am the Lord, I will give to you, I am with you, I will not leave you until I have brought it to completion. That was God's word to Jacob. But what is Jacob's word back to God? So he's learning, he's not quite there, but he says, if God will be with me, and if God will keep me, in this way that I'm going, in other words, he wants God to bless him in the way that he's going. And if God will give me bread and clothing, if God will provide for me and meet my needs, so that I may come back to my father's house, then I'll serve him. And isn't that the way it is with us so often? You know, God, I want to know your plan, but then I want to evaluate your plan in light of what I want. And if your plan seems good to me, then I'm willing to commit to it. But God has revealed his plan to him. And he said, I want you to follow me. I'm committing myself to you. This is God speaking to a man. I'm committing myself to you. I'm committing to bless you. I will be with you. Wow, to know that the Lord, the, the Lord speaking that word straight to his heart. You would think and you would hope that if God did that to him, and certainly if he did that to me or to you, that we would go, yes, Lord, amen. I will follow you. I will not question you ever again because of this encounter that we've had here at Bethel. But we know, of course, that's not the case. And as we go on and we see Jacob's life, a few years down the road, he'll start to come around and things will start to, to change for him. But this is a turning point in his life. You see, God will overrule the schemes of man. God will have his way. His will will come to pass. And as we talked about last week in terms of living in fear, listen, you can't change or alter God's plans. God's will was going to be done in Jacob and Esau and Rebekah and Isaac's life one way or another. Now, God allowed it to happen through the, the trickery of man and through the scheming of a, of a husband and a wife that weren't united. He allowed it, but I don't think that was his best plan. I don't think that was what he truly had in mind. I think he, he wanted it to come the way it should have come, with the father calling the family together and saying, look, this is the word of the Lord. Esau, I know this is hard for you, son, but, but God has spoken. And this is, this is what we have to do. And so this is the direction we're going. And so we're gonna worship God. We're gonna build an altar like my father Abraham did. And then I'm gonna give the blessing to Jacob. That would have been a better way, wouldn't it? But instead it came through this way. Now, something we're going to need to keep in the back of our minds as we come to future weeks here <clears throat> is that while God may forgive our sin, Often our sin, the, the de decisions that we've made, the consequences of our sin do come back to bite us, and certainly the consequences of Jacob's sin will come back to bite him in the coming uh, chapters as we read about how he gets to Laban's house and he begins to serve there, and he, he meets his match in his uncle Laban, who's just as cunning, or if not more so, than he was. 
and he'll begin to learn some very hard lessons. And here's another thing that we have to learn as we close this morning. Tell me this isn't true. I'm going to raise my hand and be the first one to say this. I learn lessons the hard way. I learned them through failure. Amen. <laughs> I learned them because I did what was wrong, because I didn't do what I knew was right, because I sinned against the Lord, because I thought my way was better, or you know what? Worse, I didn't care what God's way was. I just knew what I wanted to do, and I did it. If we live that way, yes, God will forgive you of your sin, but the consequences often live on for years. And yet God says, I will be with you even in this. I will see you through. I will see it through to the end. Thank God for the promise of Philippians 1.6. You know what it says? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you do not abandon us to our sin. You speak to us, you warn us before we go in, you warn us while we're in it, and you warn us as we're coming out of it. But he still loves us, he still cares for us. That is the grace and the mercy of God. God's mercy and grace in the face of our schemes. When will we ever learn that we can't, through our own will and our own scheming and our own reasoning, we can't convince God to see it our way. You see, it's we who need to see it his way. And through, <clears throat> through these stories, <clears throat> he is appealing to us. He is reaching out to us. He is saying to us in as gentle yet as firm a way as he possibly can, follow me. My way is always better. Obedience is better than doing it your way. And we need to learn these things. And if we will learn them through the stories, these, these things in the Old Testament, Paul tells us in the New Testament, these things are written for our instruction. Now, if you're a parent or even if you've been a child to a parent, and I assume we all have, you, you know parents tell you things, don't do that. And they tell you that because they know that if you do that, that's going to turn out bad for you. But we go and we do it anyway. These things are for our instruction. God wants us to learn from our mistakes. He wants us to learn from our sin. That we might trust him. That we might follow him. That's his desire. <clears throat> Here's the lesson for us today. Will we learn that lesson? Will we begin to do things God's way? Will we begin to trust him in spite of our, us thinking that we know the right thing to do? I mean, think about this. How many times have you and I made decisions simply because we go, I got this. I know what to do. I'm just going to do it and go forward. And then maybe down the road, say, oh, yeah, by the way, Lord, would you bless this thing I'm doing right now that I'm involved in? Listen, we need to ask God's blessing before we make the decision, right? Not after. God is not obligated to bless my mess, right? He loves me, he'll bless me, but he's not gonna bless my mess. And so I want the blessing of God on my life. How do I get it? I follow him. 
They say, Lord, just like James says, hey, come you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a place, go to a city and do this or that and make a profit. And he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall do this or that. We need to learn to bring God in before we make the decision. Amen. Lord, we love you. We bless you this morning. Thank you for how you have taken care of us. You've been so faithful, God. Help us in our weakness and our foolishness and our stupidity, God, and help us to trust you. Help us to come to you first and to ask and to come with open hands with the things that we want to do and say, God, is this what, is this what you want? Is this your plan? Is this the best? Or should we shelve it? Should we put it away? Should we wait? Lord, help us to trust you and to follow you. And Lord, this morning, if there be any here who are listening that have never trusted you, who have never come to our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and realize that I can't do it, I can't please God, that only through the blood of Christ can the wrath of God be satisfied. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning believing that by faith and trusting in the finished, completed work of Christ on the cross for our sins, that we might have a relationship with you, that we might enter in and that we might be forgiven and set free from the guilt and the shame of our sin. Thank you that if we come and we believe and trust and we say, yes, Lord, then you will come in and we will be saved and our names will be written in the book of life for all of eternity and we will get to go be with you in heaven. So Lord, until then, may we walk with you. May we trust you. May we believe that you are greater than any problem that we face. And may we understand that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are your ways above our ways. Lord, we love you. We bless you. And as we sing this song this morning, it's just an act of worship as we go out. We trust that you will speak to us and minister to us. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, let's stand and worship the Lord. Even your home, get up, stop sitting on the couch. Let's worship the Lord.